Okay, turn if you would to Acts 24. Look at the whole chapter today of Acts 24. Let's pray as we go to the Word. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but your word, our Father, remains forever. May we delight ourselves in these abiding things. May we feed as the sheep of your pasture on the good food that you have given us. Uh, This morning, the words and actions of your Apostle Paul set down for us by your servant Luke as a record of events and circumstances composed in your own mind from eternity past for your glory and inspired by your Holy Spirit. We see this word as such, and may we be filled and nourished and strengthened by it. In Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand, if you're able, for the reading of the word. A reminder of some of these longer passages that Paul tells Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's Again, as I say from time to time, the reading of the passage is the best part of the sermon. This is the Word of God. Acts 24, And after five days, the high priest Annas came down with some of the elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him, you yourself will be able to find out from him everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge affirming all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia... They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before them in the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while while standing among them, 
It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming, coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is the word of the Lord. We've arrived at this third defense of five Paul makes for himself and for the gospel toward the end of Acts here. And in the first defense, we saw Paul before a rather tumultuous crowd on the the Temple Mount, uh, reasoning with them about his own apostleship, his call from the Lord Jesus, who had been risen and ascended. In his second defense, Paul uh, really could hardly get a word in edgewise, but we see him uh, using his shrewdness and uh, he puts on display in that defense what it means to be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. And this third defense is the most formal. It's an actual courtroom defense. And Paul here is put on the stand and, and formally accused And he must defend himself and and defend the gospel. So if the second defense embodied Christ's words, be wise as serpent and innocent as doves, this uh, defense, I think, embodies Christ's words from Luke 21, 12 and 13. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be bought before kings and governors for my sake. And this will be your opportunity To bear witness. So we remember the context of this story that there's a murderous pact of 40 plus fasters who said we're not going to rest until Paul is dead. And uh, of course, uh, Lysias the Tribune catches word of this. He sends Paul away by night uh, with 470 Roman soldiers to Caesarea and and, and to be tried before Felix. And he commands the, the Jews to, if you have something to accuse him, him of, go and do it properly before the governor Felix. And so that's what they're about to do. So it's been five days. Uh, uh, Paul's been in the uh, Herod's Praetorium imprisoned for that time. And now we have Ananias, the high priest or a high priest coming down. And we re- realize, recognize that this is an important event for the Jews if Ananias, the high priest, is willing to travel the 60 miles uh, down to Caesarea to do this. And he brings with them this Tertullus. He's a hired gun. Uh, the ESV says he's a spokesman. The Greek really is he's a rhetorician. He's a he's a, a lawyer. They're bringing in in the big guns here. It reminds me kind of of Luther's trial where they bring in Eck. Right, that's his name, right? Eck. 
but he's this Tertullus proves to be less savvy than than Eck was. He doesn't have the greatest case here, uh, but they begin to present their case, laying out accusations. And in my view, their accusations pretty much amount to, we don't like Paul. So he opens his defense or his his accusations with some winning marks toward Felix. And this is common, a common tactic in the rhetoric of the day um, to say good things about the, the judge who you stand before. And these good things that, that Tertullus uh, speaks to Felix are absolutely brimming with baloney. Uh, they hate Felix. The Jews hated Felix. He says to him, since through you we enjoy much peace and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. Um, Yet Felix was a bad ruler. His crime was skyrocketing. Unrest was skyrocketing. And in fact, in a couple of years, Felix will be recalled from his post by Nero for being too harsh. (laughs) by Nero for being too harsh. And uh, Josephus says that if it wasn't for the fact that that, uh, Felix's brother had some sway in Rome, he would have been punished or executed for his his governorship of Judah. So he was not a good ruler. The Jews hated him. And in fact, there's something about how when they were not they couldn't make accusation while he was in office, but when he went got recalled to Rome, the Jews from Caesarea went to make accusation against Felix. So uh, this, yeah, this is full of baloney. And I just wonder, can you imagine saying such things to some of the rulers that we might not esteem very highly? Just to try to get in tight with them, to, to earn political points. That thought makes my stomach turn, but if we're honest, that's the way the world turns. Uh, Proverbs 26 24 warns, however, 24 through 28, whoever hates disguises himself with lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. That's the reality of flattering. And and we see here, even here, that we need to beware of this temptation to flatter for personal gain, because as we see, even in a short time, even the short-term effects kind of don't last very long. In verses 5 through 8, then Luke describes their accusations, and I appreciated uh, Daryl Bach helpfully kind of identifies four accusations. I might, again, I just call them complaints. They're not even real accusations, but he's, Bach says, in some, four elements are present in the charges. Paul is, number one, a pest, or literally a plague. Number two, he's a political agitator. Number three, he is the leader of a sectarian movement. And number four, he's one who tried to be disruptive in the temple. So he's a plague, he's a political agitator, he's a leader of a sectarian movement, and he tried to be disruptive in the temple. And Bach again here says that this can be reduced to the statement that Paul disturbs the peace as a seditious member of a dangerous sect. 
Paul disturbs the peace as a seditious member of a dangerous sect, which I think will always be a go-to accusation against those who, who would cut across the grain of society. That they disrupt progress. They are not team players. They're, they're a threat to the way that we live our lives. Remember back from chapter 19, this was the complaint of, of Demetrius, the silversmith. He said, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may become into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great god Artemis may be counted as nothing. I just want to look at these uh, four accusations a little bit more because Paul will later uh, systematically dismantle them. First, that he's a plague. So they're saying Paul is a pestilence. He's a he's a disease. I just remember have uh, home alone when before they leave. And, and one of Kevin's sisters says, you're such a disease, Kevin. That's what they're saying to Paul. Paul is a disease. Second, he's a a political agitator, so he stirs up riots among the Jews of the whole world. Here, I think they're assuming his motivations, that that's his aim, to stir up riots. That's what he's doing. He's he's actually a political agitator. He wants to cause unrest in the Roman world. And they're saying to Felix, can't you see, and really I think this is their whole angle, can't you see that Paul is a threat to the Pax Romana, to the peace of Rome? which the peace of Rome was the thing for any Roman ruler to maintain. Uh, Third, that he was a leader of a sectarian movement. This word sect, they call him a member of a sect or leader of a sect, is the Greek word uh, heresis, from which we get heresy. And by calling him uh, a ringleader of the Nazarenes, that's kind of like maybe saying, He's a, 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 mem- a ringleader of a sect of the Appalachians. It's this sort of backwater um, group of, of people. The, these hillbillies, these nobodies from nowhere are disrupting the peace and happiness of our society with their backward notions. That's what they're saying by calling him a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. They're not even willing to mention the name of Jesus. And number four, that he tried to be disruptive in the temple They say, but essentially, we stopped him. We did. We stopped him. Referring, of course, to the incident where he was accused falsely of bringing a Gentile into the temple, uh, Trophimus, by the Ephesian Jews. Um, And, of course, if he had done that, that would have been worthy of the death penalty for Paul, and it would have been, indeed, intentionally stirring up uh, trouble in Judea. Just a quick note aside here, if you look, scan through the text, you'll notice uh, the verse numbers skip from verse 6 to verse 8. There's no verse 7. That's a a textual variant in which they say that um, he even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands and commanding his uh, accusers to come to you. Um, looking at the evidence, it's probably not original. And if you want to talk more about textual criticism, I've just been teaching my Greek kids about that. I'm happy to talk more about it, but it's probably not original. But there's, that's why there's no verse 7 there. And in verse 8, um, he says, Tertullus says, by examining himself, 
you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. In other words, oh great Felix, we're sure in your imminent wisdom you will concur with our conclusions. And of course the Jews do concur. They, they, he says they agree with him. Yes, yes brother Tertullus, we couldn't have said it better. As we look at these accusations that are made against uh, Paul, we may consider our own uh, lives and the accusations that are made against God's people really throughout Scripture. And it should cause us to pause and think, what are the accusations made against us? Are we viewed as a pestilence, a plague by society, by the world? And even if wrongly, and I hope and pray that it's always wrongly viewed that way. And are we prepared to suffer unjust treatment, unjust uh, accusations, false accusations and malignment for the name of Christ? Because in some sense it's always inevitable, but we should also be encouraged by what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now in verse 10, uh, Felix then nods to Paul. It's his turn to make a defense. And Paul will now proceed to systematically dismantle Tertullus's case. And the first thing he addresses here is whether or not he is in fact an agitator. Is Paul an agitator? Um, Paul, of course, is also aware of and skilled in Roman rhetoric. So he too opens his speech with a kind word toward Felix, but he refuses to stoop like Tertullus did to dishonesty and flattery. He just offers this simple, gracious, respectful introduction, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. I cheerfully make my defense. He says here, essentially, look, any viable accusation these men have to make against me has to be from when I was there in Jerusalem, which from the time I arrived to now has been 12 days and I've been waiting here five days. So just a few days their 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 uh, accusations have to come from that time period over which time it seems my accusers can't bring you a single shred of evidence that I was stirring up trouble. They couldn't find me arguing with anyone anywhere in the synagogues, in the temple, in the marketplace. So he's essentially saying in verse 13, prove it. You claim I'm an agitator. This is a court of law. Provide some evidence. In verses 14 through 16, then Paul undermines another of Tertullus's claims by stating more positively what he has done and what he thinks he is as a Jew. And he's essentially asking the question, is he is he a sectarian dissident? Is he a sectarian leader? He's saying, no, I'm not a leader of this small sect of the Nazarenes. To the contrary, I'm a Jew just like them. I worship the same God, the God of our fathers. I believe every last word of the law and the prophets. I have the same hope that they have in the resurrection of the dead. And this way that I am following is the way. Christianity is not a mere sect of the Nazarenes. It it is the faith of our fathers. So here he's getting a bit theological on the stand. 
But he's saying it is the proper path, the true path, the orthodox faith. And as such, as an adherent of such, he says, I try always to be as obedient, respectful, and loving as I can possibly be. In verse 16, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I don't think most of us will be tangling with Jews right now in this setting, but I wonder if we share in Paul's confidence. This is the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Because we are likewise accused of being sort of backwater, fundy, anti-progress people. Get with the program. Get with the settled science. But we can say, like Paul, with, with confidence, to the contrary, I worship the God of this creation, by whom and for whom all things were made. Christians are not sectarian dissidents or, or batty backwater cultist anti-society loons. We're thoughtful, rational, respectful, pro-society who know and who worship the God who made this world. So Paul is not an agitator. He's not a sectarian dissident. And in verses 17 through 21, now he addresses, did he actually stir up trouble in the temple? Well, he says he came to bring alms for the nation. He came to bring a literal physical uh, uh, monetary contribution for the people of Judea who were suffering and in need because of a famine. And instead of defiling the temple, he says he made offerings there and he was purifying himself there. And he didn't bring his his Gentile friends to the the doorstep of the the beautiful gate and start preaching out against the the Jewish leadership or the Roman leadership. Uh, He didn't sort of sneak his Gentile friends in through the gate and into the temple. And he says in verse 18, there's no crowd or tumult around me, except the only mob that did form around me was the Jews from Ephesus. And they're not even here to make an accusation against me. So since they're not here, maybe maybe these men can enlighten you about any wrongdoing I might have done when I stood before their council. He does sort of admit he noticed some of the Pharisees and Sadducees and he did cry out. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day, which is a theological position. It's not a legal or or political point that Paul made. And in fact, it's a pretty popular view among the Jews and even many of them that are there that day. I just wonder if at this point Felix just chuckled a little bit, maybe put his his head in his hands. This is really embarrassing for the Jews. They have no evidence. They don't have a single witness. They just don't like Paul. And it's such an obviously open and shut case. Paul may be irritating. He may be a burr in the saddle of the Jews, but he's not a plague. He's not a political agitator. He's not a sectarian leader. And he didn't stir up any trouble in the temple. (laughs) However, uh, Felix is no saint. 
He's kind of here. Felix is between a rock and a hard place. In 22, Luke says that Felix has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. And as the leader of Judea for the better part of five years, he probably had gleaned some knowledge about Christianity. He knows really that Paul's accusers are full of hot air. But he also knows this way has been spreading through Judea. And he knows if he lets Paul off the hook, he may have a riot on his hands. As the Roman provincial governor, his job is to keep the peace in Judea, which I think probably is a bit like maintaining a, a controlled burn in a stiff wind. That the, the Jews were not easy to, to contain. So while it's clear that Paul is innocent, it's also clear this is a volatile situation. And so in a, bro- a stroke of brilliance, Felix defers the case. He says, when Lysias comes down, I'll, I'll talk to him about it. No time stamp on that. This is when Lysias is coming. Just when he comes, we'll deal with it. So he imprisons Paul yet again in Herod's praetorium. He does allow for a degree of freedom. He allows his friends to come and visit him, um, which in a Roman prison, they had the, the most meager of, of rations and they were dependent on their friends for survival. Um, So this was gracious to a degree of Felix recognizing Paul's innocence. But Felix's procrastination here is unjust. And in the context of Luke's history here, it also highlights who the true dissidents are. If the accusation leveled against Paul that he was a disturber of the peace had been proved true, Felix could have punished him. He could have executed him. But as we see, he, he couldn't do that. But he was, all, he was also quick to, to try to find favors with the Jews and to pacify their anger. So though unjust, this, this situation is unjust. As we saw last week, in the providence of God... This imprisonment puts Paul in the perfect position to preach the gospel to people he would not otherwise have had opportunity to preach to. (coughs) Uh, Felix seems to have a sort of strange fascination with Paul here. Um, And it turns out it's mostly a monetary fascination. He he probably heard of the the contribution Paul brought to the Judeans and thought he can probably get more of that. But even Felix's corrupt motives here open the door for the public proclamation of the gospel in the governor's household. So in 24, Luke says, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Drusilla is the daughter of King Agrippa I. Um, she'd been married in a, in a, in a arranged marriage before, but she was a, a beautiful woman and, and Felix, who had been married twice before, convinced her to leave her husband and to come be with him. Um, also, interestingly, Dr- Drusilla is the um, sister of Bernice, who's also the sister of the man Bernice is married to, Agrippa II. So it's, it's just a soap opera of, of, of confusion in that uh, Herodian household. Um, and some, according to some manuscripts, it's actually Drusilla who wants to hear Paul 
speak the gospel. But Paul has an opportunity to address Felix, and I just wonder what would we say if we were given the opportunity, if we were given the ear of our governor? What would we say? Here's my list of policy grievances. Here's my list of, of tax reform ideas. It says he sent for Paul and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. That's the way Luke summarizes Paul's message. Faith in Christ Jesus. And in the course of conveying this message, Paul speaks, of course, about righteousness, self-control and the coming judgment. Part of preaching the gospel is preaching the law. He's saying, dear, dear Felix, bribe seeking, adulterous, violent Felix, God demands that you be perfectly righteous. And I can see that you're indulgent. You lack self-control. And Felix, there's nothing you can do. It's too late. You cannot stand before God. As I stood before you in your court, you will stand before the judgment seat of God. What are you going to do with your sin? Will you consider Jesus? Will you bend the knee to Jesus? He died to bear the curse of sin for sinners like you. Come and put your trust in him so that you'll be cleansed to stand secure before the judgment throne. Sadly, Felix's response is is not faith, but again, as appears to be his M.O., he punts. He says in 25, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. This is because Paul's message made him very, very uncomfortable. Daryl Box says uh, the term alarmed is the term emphabos, which reflects emotions that are more intense than even the normal Greek word for fear, which is phabos. So this is intense fear that Paul has struck into uh, Felix, that he, he was alarmed, he was freaked out by Paul's message. And yet we see that's not enough to bring somebody into the kingdom. Just knowing your sin, just recognizing your sin is not enough, but bending the knee and trusting in Christ is enough. Luke concludes in verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Um, So his time as governor comes to the end again because Nero had recalled him for his poor governorship and because the Jews hated him. And this highlights why perhaps Felix was so keen to do the Jews a favor. He knew they were going to come to accuse him. And so he just he leaves Paul in prison, who had been there for two years at this point. Which, in God's providence, will give Paul a new opportunity to preach to a new governor, to, to Portius Festus. Now, isn't it interesting, I find it interesting, as we go through these defenses, it seems no one or very few people are convinced by Paul's apologetic The Jews, they continue to hate him and hotly pursue him. The Romans continue with their sort of bureaucratic response to the gospel. And Felix, though he does seem to be struck with a palpable sense of his sin, continues to to return to his sin like a dog to his vomit. He, He talks to Paul frequently, but only in hopes of getting a bribe. 
I remember going to a pastor's sort of meeting once in, in Westcliff a long time ago, and there was a man there who would go do ministry in the Philippines, and he, he came back to the, the pastor's meeting one day, and he, he recounted all the great things that are hop- happening, people being converted, sort of revival-type things happening there, which was great. And he said, he said, brothers, it was like the book of Acts. It's like the book of Acts over there. I wonder, why don't we say that about situations like this? I spoke of Christ to some friends, and they, they're like a brick wall. It's like, it's like the book of Acts. Again, uh, the results are not up to us. Faithfulness is up to us. Amid all the chaos, the injustices, the varied, less-than-ideal responses... Paul here is able to stay laser focused on the ultimate point of everything, the mission of the church, the hope of the nations. Festus heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So may we be as faithful, not because we see it as some kind of New Testament formula for ministry, but because we ourselves find that our own hope, whatever our earthly judges may say of us, We stand by faith in Jesus on the great day of his judgment. Praise God. Amen.